Welcome to the podcast of InterVarsity's Women in the Academy and Professions, giving voice to women seeking to live fully into their God-given callings and be a redeeming influence, whether in the university or beyond. It is such a privilege to have Dr. Grace G. Sun Kim on this episode. Dr. Kim is an Associate Professor of Theology at Earlham School of Religion and also the author or editor of 15 books, most recently, Intercultural Ministry, Embracing the Other, and Healing Our Broken Humanity. She is also a writer for the Huffington Post, Sojourners, Time, and more of her writing can be found on her own website. She is also an ordained minister within the PCUSA denomination. Thank you so much for being here on our podcast this, this week. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself, your educational background, and how you ended up doing what you're doing now. So I um, received my PhD in 2001, and I came to the U.S. in 2004 to start teaching. And um, I've, I've always been interested in writing books. So that's how I came up with this latest book, um, Healing Our Broken Humanity, co-written with Dr. Graham Hill. So you shared that you got your PhD in 2001. So what was that in? Um, it was in theology at the um, University of Toronto. University of Toronto, there are seven, um, um, seven seminaries. So um, it's much like the GTU here in the U.S. So there's a Baptist, Presbyterian, United Church of Canada, Anglican, and two Roman Catholics, and a Jesuit college. Um, and so I received a PhD from St. Michael's University, which is the Roman Catholic school, because they're the only ones that can grant the PhD. Um, all the other schools do the THD. So that's what happened. Yeah. So that's how I am where I am today. Okay. And, and so you're an ordained minister as well? Yes. So um, up in Canada, I went to Knox College for my MDiv um, degree, and that's a Presbyterian church in Canada. So I've been a Presbyterian most of my life. And so when I came to the U.S. in 2004, I started um, the ordination process. I restarted it. I, I finished everything up in Canada. But um, one of the policies in Canada is that you have to teach, I mean, not teach, you have to be a minister half time to get ordained in a church. And that was going to be too difficult because after my MDiv degree, I went straight into the PhD program. I was always working part-time in the during my PhD studies, but never um, enough to do a half-time position. So I never got ordained up in Canada. Um, I started the process in 1992, and then I came here to the U.S., and I restarted the process, and I didn't get ordained until 2011, and I got ordained in the PCUSA, Presbyterian Church. Great. Well, thank you for sharing um, just a bit about your background. And then you mentioned uh, that you just recently wrote a book with Graham Hill, Healing Our Broken Humanity. What led you to co-authoring that book? Um, as you may uh, well know, well, as you may know, and your listeners may know, co-writing is very difficult. Anyway, writing yourself is hard too, but co-writing is hard. And I remember when my uh, PhD supervisor, he had finished co-writing a book with his wife. And I said, how was that? And he, I'll never forget his response. He said, um, we're just lucky to be still married <laughs> after the book came out. So, you know, he was trying to tell me how difficult it is to co-write because there's a lot of negotiating and a lot of um, going back and forth and both people have to agree. So that the one I, that just came out, Healing a Broken Humanity, that's not the first book that I co-wrote with. I've, my first one is with uh, Dr. Joseph Che. We wrote Theological Reflections on Gangnam Style. And actually, it wasn't mm -hmm. as bad. There was a lot of um, negotiating, but we're good friends and we are still good friends. So that worked <laughs> out well. <laughs> the second book I co-authored is with my teenage daughter, Elizabeth Lee. So we co-wrote a book called Mother Daughter Speak. So that was mm -hmm. fun to do. You know, Many times I thought we weren't going to finish the book because she's in high school and she's very, very busy, but I kept pushing her and we got that one done. So I met Graham Hill, I don't know, about four or five years ago. He does a lot of interviewing. He lives in Australia, but he goes around the world. The project that he started is a global church project, and he does interview a lot of theologians and scholars and activists around the world. So we've been emailing and he came about four years ago to interview me. 
here in the U.S. And we were always, we, we kept talking about that we should co-write a book together. He's written, I think, five books before this one. And I said, sure, I'm always interested in co-writing. I already did two co-written books. So I said, sure. And after we said we will, we were just thinking of a topic to write on. And just one day, Graham emailed me and said, what about this topic? And I thought, it's such a relevant topic for our time today. Um, as I look around in our churches and our faith communities, and even in our society and you know, here in the U.S. Um, under President Trump, there's so much um, brokenness. Mm. Uh, so I thought it was a very timely um, topic to kind of co-write. And it's a very global perspective because, you know, myself, I was born in Korea um, and we immigrated to Canada in 1975. So living in three different countries and um, Graham Hill living in Australia, we really wanted to have a global approach to how this brokenness is not just restricted to one little area uh, mm. where we live, but it is a global problem. We deal with a lot of issues of brokenness in our book um, that is not just a localized problem, but a globalized problem. So um, I thought the topic was timely and I said, sure. So we wrote it as quick as possible because um, we felt the urgency to get the book out. So people will kind of recognize the brokenness that actually exists in our society and our churches and name them. Um, some of the brokenness um, that we touch on. Um, I don't know if the church necessarily views it as a sin, but we want to label it as a sin, as a true brokenness within our humanity, and then work towards how we can heal um, this brokenness in our community and, and then as individuals and even in the wider society. Yeah, and I agree. It's definitely a timely book. Uh, as I was reading through it, I just really appreciated all of the different aspects of brokenness that you addressed. And one of the questions that we've been trying to sort of standardize our podcast at the end is to conclude with um, the same question. Uh, but it, your whole book is really an answer to this question. So I thought I'd start with the question instead of conclude. Um, but the question is, what are some of the spiritual practices that have been meaningful to you lately? Uh, and again, the, the Healing Our Broken Humanity book is very practical and essentially is all about spiritual practices that are, are not just individual, but communal. Um, so what have been some of the most meaningful spiritual practices for you uh, on an individual level and as well in community? Uh, thank you for asking that question. Um, and as you mentioned, the whole book um, is a very practical book. Um, there's nine chapters and each of them are kind of dealing with um, the spiritual healing and spiritual practices that people can engage in as individuals and as a community. So as we were writing it, you know, we had to reflect on our own lives of what we kind of practice ourselves um, and, and then thread that into the book. So I think um, Graham and I, uh, because, you know, we're different people, there were different practices. But for me, I think the ones that we included in the book, um, the practice of lamenting um, has mm -hmm. been uh, very meaningful. I think we as um, churches and faith communities um, living today don't really practice this lament. But when we examine the scriptures, particularly Old Testament, the book of Psalms and Lamentations is full of the people of God lamenting, kind of crying out um, in sorrow and in pain and agony, you know, the pain that one is experiencing in their hearts. So I think the practice of lamenting, I think, is kind of an important step before we go into uh, repentance. So um, it makes us recognize that the pain that we are experiencing that we can share that with God, that we need to cry out and say that this is actually happening and that there is something wrong and it is leading to our brokenness. So that's a spiritual practice, uh, lamenting and also um, a lot of prayer. Uh, when my kids were younger, so I have three kids, we used to pray more together. But now, you know, one kid's in college and 
the kids are, are extremely busy at night. So um, this practice of praying together has become more an individual prayer. So that has been um, very helpful for me in overcoming some of the pain that I experience um, on a daily basis due to some of the brokenness that is part of our church and in our society. Some of the uh, brokenness that we uh, deal with in the book is, uh, for example, racism and sexism. These things are so systemic in our society, the systemic racism and um, the systemic um, sexism that exists in the wider community in our churches. And me as a, a Korean American woman, understood as a woman of color, we do experience it very often. So I think um, rather than being helpless or being anger, I think it's important to practice this lamenting. So today um, we're recording, but earlier this week, um, I just returned last night from leading a retreat for the Asian Commission within the uh, United Methodist Church. And they wanted me to speak on this book, Healing Our Broken Humanity. So, you know, there's so much in the book and I only had four different sessions of speaking and leading workshops. But it felt like um, from the participants, because they kept telling me over and over again, that they really appreciated the lamenting. I think lamenting has kind of been lost in our society today in our present world mm-hmm. and they were so appreciative of me kind of reminding them that this is a practice that was part of our um, heritage and that perhaps we need to do again so even for myself the the spiritual practice of lamenting and, and tied in with prayer I think has been uh, very, very helpful. So I'm hoping that um, your listeners and your readers, um, if if the readers get a chance to uh, read the book, the chapter mm-hmm. on lament is really early in the book, that I hope that they will also find it helpful. Most of the chapters end with, with, an append, uh, with some uh, pra- practical tasks that uh, readers can do either as individuals or as a faith community. So even in the section on lament, we kind of encourage the readers to practice and write out lament or or practice um, it saying out loud. So I hope that, um, you know, what was helpful for me will also be helpful for your readers and for uh, your listeners. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, lament was one of the chapters in the book that I really um, found interesting or beneficial. And at the beginning of the chapter, uh, you quote theologian Emmanuel Katongli as he reflects on the Rwandan genocide. And he says, the resurrection of the church begins with lament. Uh, And then you go on to talk about how this is really difficult for many Americans. And as you mentioned before, it's sort of been lost practice. Uh, Would, you know, maybe if our, our listeners haven't really been familiar with lament, would you provide a definition and then maybe how you think um, the revitalization and resurrection of the church is connected to lament? Okay, thank you again for that question. Um, I think a short definition would be uh, perhaps lamenting is like a passionate cry out to God about our own pain and sorrow. I think the recognition uh, me as a Korean American, uh, in Korea, we have a term called Han, H-A-N, which many Korean American theologians are now using um, when we're doing theology and trying to bring in Asian American theology within the wider context here in the U.S. Um, into white Euro theology. So Han, um, uh, you know, as, as you know, if you speak different languages, it's very difficult to translate mm-hmm. uh, foreign words into the English language. But the, maybe the best way to translate Han is um, uh, piercing of the heart and unjust mm-hmm. suffering. So um, when, when there are systems set up to cause this unjust suffering, then it causes this uh, feeling of Han. So, uh, for example, when sexism is set up, so when a woman is raped and the justice system does nothing to uh, bring kind of justice into the woman's life, then she will continue to experience Han. And 
um, there's so many stories that you and I will probably are aware of where uh, people are suffering unjustly. So this experience of Han, I think uh, rather than keeping it um, bottled up, because Koreans also think if you keep it bottled up, it may destroy you uh, physically mm-hmm. or spiritually, or you may do something horrible. So for example, when a young girl was raped and the brother was trying to ask the rapist, this was much later in her life. So when she became an adult and she couldn't cope, her marriage had failed. And she just, because of the rape that she endured as a really young child, it had devastating effects. So when her family found out and her brother uh, wanted to get some compensation from the rapist, who was a family friend. The rapist had offered, I think, $400 as a compensation. The rape victim was furious uh, with the $400 compensation, so she decided to take matters uh, in her own hands and decided to shoot the man and kill him. So that is this kind of unjust suffering, this pain in your heart where if you don't let go of it properly, you may cause more devastation. And so we don't want that to happen. So I think in a sense, when I think about lamenting, this crying out to God, it is this way of releasing this unjust suffering, this piercing of the heart, this grief that is kind of built in you. And you kind of have to cry out and, and ask God and and kind of lift it up. I think that is kind of an important practice um, before we go into um, repentance or forgiveness or any other act or this un, um, this movement towards healing that we really cry out. And the book has examples of how uh, one can engage in writing. And I think when we think about a Sunday morning, um, as a Presbyterian, uh, I worship or I preach most Sundays in a Presbyterian church. We have prayers, we have time for confession, but there's really no time for lament because mm-hmm. I think as a church, we've kind of lost this practice of lament. But I wonder if we um, try to do this more as individuals and as a corporate body of Christ, things may look differently. Maybe we will recognize that there is a lot of pain and sometimes it is not a pain that we lash out, but rather than lashing out and doing all these revenge or some negative things that we kind of lay it and cry it out to God and lay it at God's feet and then go into the next step. I think it is this practice that uh, needs to be retrieved and something that will eventually help us as individuals and as faith communities that we really cry out to God and lay it at God's feet. This harm that we're experiencing or this grief, this anguish and this pain that we really cry out to God and lay it before God. Mm, yeah. That contrast between sort of lashing out and lifting it up to the yes. Lord. Uh-huh. There's a huge difference. And I think mm-hmm. when we suffer so much, when there is so much agony, you know, we don't know whether we're lashing out sometimes. And then we recognize that there are consequences to our action much later. So rather than doing that, I think if we can turn that pain to God, I think there will be a huge difference. So even as an Asian American theologian, um, many, when we write about Han, people aren't really connecting Han to lament. But I think uh, we can make that clear connection and really help people in our churches and those who are seeking some form of spirituality that uh, perhaps this is something that has been missing so much in our church and in our uh, spiritual walk that we kind of need to bring it back and practice it and that it will make a difference. And then you talked about um, justice earlier, and one of the spiritual practices in the book is restoring justice. Um, And it's written, justice requires us to move toward dignity, hope, and freedom for all people, inclusive of all their differences. Justice requires that we leave no one out. We must leave no one's experience unconsidered in exploring and expanding our idea of God, sin, redemption, and the church. Can you share more about what justice means to you and how you practice restoring justice in your own life? 
Okay, so, um, you know, I've done many uh, podcasts before your podcast on this particular book. It seems that there's a lot of interest. And then I, I also did a few radio shows. One of them was a live radio show. And um, the host kept asking me, you know, you list a lot of um, these injustices in your book, but you're still missing some, right? <laughs> he pointed that out. And I said, yeah, because you know, we can't list everything. And, and our list was longer at the beginning, but our editor at InterVarsity Press said the list is too long and people <laughs> don't want to read all these long lists. <laughs> we ended up um, cutting them. So, you know, we, we can't address every injustice in the book. So right. we tried to pick on main things that um, Graham and I have particular interests and that that is very um big in our world today, both in Australia and here in the U.S. But I think, you know, this injustice that is kind of set up and, I, you know, a lot of it comes out because of our distorted view of humanity. You know, me as a woman of color experiencing um, racism and prejudice and discrimination due to the color of my skin. A uh, woman, because we are born as a woman are experiencing um, sexism and patriarchy in the wider society and even in our churches. In the Asian American church, you know, it's kind of set up with this, and like it's a very patriarchal society and the churches are very patriarchal. And I have, you know, a long list of the injustices that happen towards women in our churches. And all this injustice because of one sexuality, uh, sexual orientation. So, you know, the list can go on and on and on. And I think if God created all of us in God's image and God loves us all, whether, you know, we're man or woman, tall or short, thin or, or, or heavy or bald or with hair, uh, whether, um, you know, whom we love, whom we fall in love with, I don't know why we can't do likewise. And rather than the loving, we do the opposite. We start to discriminate and say there's something wrong. You know, we can't, you know, I belong to the Presbyterian Church, PCUSA, and we, we, you know, we were dealing with the human sexuality issue. And once we decided to go for full inclusion, so many churches left, so many members left because they couldn't handle it. Um, I just got back with the United Methodist um, retreat mm -hmm. and they're dealing with the issue today and they're torn apart. I don't know why we cannot accept and welcome and love and embrace. When we look at the life of Jesus, you know, Jesus loved the lepers. You know, the lepers were the outcasts. Nobody wanted to associate with them. They couldn't live with the regular folks. But Jesus loved the lepers and Jesus healed them. He had compassion on them. When we think about the Samaritan woman at the well, um, you know, the um, Jewish people did not like Samaritans. They were um, enemies, kind of. And in particular, no one wanted to speak to a woman out in public or be with the Samaritan woman. And there Jesus is having this conversation with this woman at the well and then even asking her to give him some water. This wonderful dialogue, this wonderful way of Jesus reaching out to someone who was such an outcast in that time. You know, Jesus kind of broke down these barriers and wanted to uh, build a more just society where people are welcome, where we are to love, break down these barriers. But I don't know why we can't follow in the steps of Jesus and we continue to do this wrongful deeds. And so, you know, creating so much injustices because, you know, so-and-so is still so different from me. So part of the book, you know, what, you know, we want to restore justice Scriptures talk about, um, you know, restoring justice, um, you know, following, uh, you know, asking God for mercy and, and, and restoring justice. So many passages are dealing with justice. So we wanted to, um, in part, talk about how we can build this justice. And there's many, many ways to do it. 
um, you know, when we think about when Trump came into power, he did, he had the Muslim ban. And there was an outcry. I know many, many Christians were very upset that, um, you know, Trump put that into, into play, trying to ban seven countries from entering here into the U.S. soil. But when we examine our own history, um, in 1882, Congress, so, well, with the Muslim ban, it's not officially a law, but something that Trump wanted to put into law. In 1882, Congress had voted to put in um, the Chinese Exclusion Act, which was the first um, instance where um, here in American soil put into law that no more Chinese were allowed to come into the U.S. Why? Because everybody was afraid of the Chinese. There was yellow fever. People were afraid. They thought the Chinese were strange people. Um, There was a lot of stereotyping of Chinese and discrimination and hate towards the Chinese people. And they thought that they would just um, keep the law for 10 years. They kept extending that law. And so the Chinese people that were already here in American soil were fearful. They had to carry papers around. They always had to prove that there were residents here. They weren't allowed to vote. They couldn't ever fight against a white person in court. Um, They couldn't, uh, you know, buy land. There were so many restrictions because the American white people who put the law into place were afraid. So, you know, that leads me to question, why are we so afraid of one another when we're all created in God's image? So that law was not lifted until 1943, which means, you know, the Chinese or any Asian, no Asians were allowed to vote until 1943. 1946, um, Japanese were allowed to vote. And then um, soon after the Indians and um, Koreans and et cetera. So, you know, this, there are all these laws kind of set into place to discriminate and be hurtful to one another. So I think part of the restoring justice is looking at our laws. Is there discrimination against women? Is there discrimination against certain people of color and work towards justice? And even in our churches, are we fearful of other people? How can we restore justice even in our church? How can we have gender equality in our churches? Because Still, a lot of our denominations won't accept women leadership or ordained women. So what are we going to do about these injustices? And there's a lot of things that we can do. It's going to take time and persistence, but um, part of our task is to restore justice. Great. Thank you so much for sharing um, a little bit more about that and, and what it could look like. I agree. It is going to take a lot of persistence and yes, a lot of work, uh-huh. a lot of work and a lot of faith and a lot of hope. And, and sometimes you just can't do it yourself. We have to help get help from one another. So we need to be in solidarity with each other. Those with lesser voice, we need to be in solidarity with. Hmm. And, and additionally, you write about uh, peacemaking and reconciliation in the book, uh, especially in contrast to the disunity and the animosity and division that you referred to earlier of our current culture. Uh, could you share a little bit about what you mean by peacemaking, as well as a picture of what reconciliation might look like? Yeah, so peacemaking, you know, that's a, you know, Jesus told us to be peacemakers. Right, yeah. Blessed are those who are our peacemakers. And that's something that I think the Christian church has forgotten about in the last 2,000 years because we have certainly engaged in a lot of war. We have certainly engaged in a lot of fighting and arguing and not creating peace, but disrupting peace. So I think it's a good reminder for us that we are to be peacemakers. And, you know, I was born in Korea. And when we think about Korea itself, Korea is the only divided country in the world. It was divided um, not by Koreans, but um, the Soviet Union, U.S., and China. They decided to um, divide us at the 38th parallel, and we've been divided for about 70 years now. So we want peace in that land. So I myself have been part of this peacemaking process, working with um, different government officials and um, lately with Reverend Jesse Jackson. So this past summer, we went to Korea um, to meet with some politicians so that we could encourage them and affirm their work for peace. Still here in the U.S., you know, uh, last week, um, 
there was an inter-Korean summit. So the president Moon Jae-in went to North Korea and met with um, Kim Jong-un um, to start this peace process. But here in the U.S., so much cynicism, so much, uh, you know, people are upset saying they don't trust Kim Jong-un. You know, he talks about denuclearization, but he's not doing it. But you see, for many Koreans, the denuclearization is not a, as big of a deal as just getting the peace treaty signed. Uh, when the war ended, we just, um, the peace was never uh, achieved. They just had ceasefire. So we want a peace treaty. We want peace between North and South Korea. You know, when you think about it, Kim Jong-un, he needs a leverage. And so he's not going to totally give up that nuclear power because he's afraid that the U.S. will bomb and kill North Koreans. So I understand as a Korean, but Americans don't seem to understand it. But for me, I think whatever it takes, we need peace. And, you know, this past week I was at the U.N. and uh, met with the South um, South African president, met with other leaders who do peacemaking. Uh, a woman who um, has been doing peacemaking, a Jewish woman who's been doing peacemaking most of her life, um, you know, she did a lot of the Yugoslavia and other nations. She even conveyed to me this week that she doesn't believe that Kim Jong-un should give up all his nuclear <laughs> uh, weapons because of exactly what I said, because uh, U.S. may end up bombing them. So the peace is more important than what Americans are kind of dealing with. Uh, but that's just one issue. But I think here in the U.S., we need peace. Um, I also work with the World Council of Churches on climate change. When we think about peace, most of the time we're thinking about human beings, but we also need peace with the earth. So one of the books um, that I edited for the World Council of Churches is Making Peace with the Earth. Hmm. Their um, theme that they had chosen at the last General Assembly, which was in Korea, maybe five, six years ago, was Making Peace with the Earth. They thought, you know, we Christians think about peace on earth. But you can't have peace on earth unless you make peace with the earth. And that includes all humanity and creation. Because we, um, as Christians, are destroying the world. You know, we, we are seeing the consequences of this through climate change. And, you know, these horrific storms that we're experiencing, tornadoes and hurricanes, are signs of what we're doing uh, as we're damaging the earth. So this peacemaking is, is a huge thing. It's not just about the war, but it, it deals with humanity. It deals with creation. So we really want peace. And when we think about reconciliation, that's another huge issue, uh, particularly here in the U.S. When we think about American history, it's built on genocide, it's built on slavery, it's built on indentured workers from Asia. There is a lot of reconciliation that needs to be done. I think part of it can be done through reparations, um, kind of compensating for those who uh, particularly the white immigrants from Europe have done and committed against Native Americans here as, as they committed genocide and, and started killing off the Native uh, Americans so that we can, so that the white settlers can gain more land. When we think about uh, Redskins, you know, I don't really watch football too much, but I know there's a football team called Redskins. When mm -hmm. we look at that origin, the word, what it means, you know, it came out of um, the time of the genocide because people, the white settlers got paid for every Indian or every Native American that they killed. They had to show proof and proof was the body. The bodies were getting too heavy to carry to show that they had killed. So then they said, just bring the heads. So they brought the heads of the Native Americans whom they killed. And then soon the heads were getting heavy. So then they said, just bring their skin. So they scalped their heads their skins to prove that they had killed the Native American. So when we think about that imagery, it's a horrific mm -hmm. part of our history, our heritage. You know, we need to build reconciliation. We need to work towards reconciliation. Um, something needs to be done because there is still a lot of pain, a lot of hurt um, with uh, Native Americans, um, uh, African Americans, and then the indentured workers of Chinese uh, and uh, and other Asians, where so many died uh, working either in um, the railroad or in the, in the mines. So something needs to be done, and 
and we need to work towards reconciliation. Yeah, thank you. That image, you know, you hear about the controversy over changing the name of the football team, but understanding the history and the actual origin of the name is, uh, you know, you ought to have a visceral response in in your body. But people are so resistant. I don't know why they're so resistant. And that's not the only kind of racist term. There's other terms that we're using. You know, I don't watch all the football and all the other teams, but I know there are other terms that we really need to get rid of um, and, and really grapple with how we can just be okay with such terms. Another thing uh, when we're talking about reconciliation, during um, during the Korean War, the Japanese had colonized um, Korea and then they had taken um, young girls, like nine-year-olds, 10-year-olds, and some older teen girls. Um, some of them were um, taken uh, deceitfully saying that they were gonna give them job opportunities. Most of them were kidnapped. And these girls were, are later known as comfort, comfort women. So right. they were used as sexual slaves. They were put in these tiny little quarters and they were raped, they said, 50 to 70 times a day. So this is a horrific thing that the Japanese had done. The the Korean government has asked for uh, reparations for them and still nothing has been done. So this is an outcry. You know, we need to do something to restore the justice, work towards reconciliation. You know, there's only a handful of them left because a handful of them are still alive because most of them have died off or many of them died as comfort women um, in these small quarters that they were kept at. But those who were liberated and saved, you know, slowly they're dying off. They're in their 90s now. So, you know, we're still crying out. The Japanese government are just waiting for the last few to die off, hoping that that will, you know, stop this outpour and outcry. But, you know, things need to be done. Yeah, even if, you know, they're gone the history is Uh still there and it's Uh um well one of the other chapters in the book uh you discuss the spiritual practice of relinquishing power and it's written that women and persons of color make up somewhere between 90 and 95 percent of the world's population uh meaning that that white men make up less than 10 percent maybe closer to six percent um and considering that with the prevalence of conferences or panels where white males are the only speakers um, kind of further leaves out important voices of women and persons of color. Uh, so the, the chapter you talk about sort of giving up relinquishing power, um, but with most of our listeners being women um, in higher education, it might feel like there's already a lack of power. What suggestions would you have uh, to offer for women, especially women of color, to relinquish power, even if they already have very little of it. Yeah, so we begin the chapter, you know, um, Dr. Graham Hill is a white male theologian. So he, he begins with his practice. I think, um, you know, when we think about the world population, 60% are Asians. That's a huge chunk of the population. So that's, you know, so when I think about myself as a woman of color, I you know, I never thought I was a woman of color until I came to the U.S. In Canada, the term that was used was visible minority. So suddenly in 2004, when I came down to the U.S. to start teaching, I became a woman of color. So when we use these terms, we have to be kind of careful. Why are we using them? Who Who's putting them on? Because uh, when we look at the global perspective, I'm not a minority, though here in the U.S. I'm considered a minority because I'm part of the majority if 60% are Asians. So when we think about the breakdown of these uh, people and the whites are so small percentage, but they have they hold so much power. So Graham Hill recognizes that he, as a white male, uh, theologian teaching in a university has a lot of power and he believes that he needs to give up some of that power. I think recognizing that there is this male privilege, white supremacy, it is crucial that you give up power. And then so your question about women of color, you know, we are kind of near the bottom, but still when we, even when I think about myself, um, 
you know, when I think about men, you know, above me and more powerful. And then when I think about the woman, you know, white women are more powerful or holds more power. Still, you know, with my status as a professor, having, you know, the degree, there is a certain form of power that I also hold too. And when we think about the voiceless woman, um, certainly, there are so many voiceless women around the world. The poor woman uh, working in factories as almost slaves. You know, this modern day slavery where you find them in many parts of Asia, in India, and in China. It's a horrific situation. So, when I compare, there is certainly power that I can also give up so that we can give the voiceless women and voiceless people uh, a voice around the table. When we're doing theology, you know, for 2,000 years, basically it was white European um, heterosexual men sitting around the table and sharing with the church, to the church, who God is, who Jesus is, what the church is, what the Holy Spirit is. I think at this time in um, in 2018 and beyond, we really need to examine who's at the table. And if there are missing peoples um, that we can invite them. So we need to give up our, our power. Um, in the book, in that chapter, we talk about so many conferences that the churches hold where they only invite white men. Mm-hmm. You know, we saw that I saw this many times this year. So there was a group of Korean American women, I think eight of us. One, one woman decided uh, because there were these conference pictures where, um, you know, in social media where they had just rows of white men. As right. Yeah. <laughs> so the Korean woman, uh, some of us are activists and writers and professors. We decided we're going to make our own. So we <laughs> made our own. It was Photoshop because we, had, we just sent our pictures and, and they Photoshopped us. And people are like, oh, wow. Just to make it, make a statement that you can't continue to invite this white man. And white man, Graham Hill, my co-author says, if there are not diverse speakers, because, you know, we as professors get invited to speak at conferences. He will not be part of it. So mm-hmm. he has decided to do that. And there's other things that he has decided to do. If other voices aren't included in an event, he won't participate in it. Because he says, why do we always have to listen to the same white male voices? But um, as your particular question for women of color, I think there are certain ways that we can kind of give up our power to give uh, power to those that have lesser power. So in a way, feminist theology from the 1960s had a sense of that we need to engage in empowering women. So um, this is part of that task too. Yeah, that's helpful because at first I wasn't sure how do how does how does a woman, especially a woman of color, give up power if they feel like there is none, but understanding there there's always someone else whose voice can be lifted up and uh, given an opportunity. Related, you you mentioned the Holy Spirit just a little bit ago, and I really appreciated the thread throughout the book about the role of the Holy Spirit in all of the spiritual practices. Can you share more of your thoughts about the Holy Spirit's role in revitalizing the church. Okay, so in the book, we um, use the Ephesians, Ephesians passage where the Spirit comes to renew us, renew the church, and renew humanity. Um, you know, when I graduated in 2001 with my PhD, the first book that was published is called The Grace of Sophia. So it was a book on uh, wisdom Christology, Sophia Christology, kind of uh, reimagining who Christ is um, in feminine terms. And I thought, wow, this is my calling. I said, I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. And so I thought I'll work on wisdom Christology because the church has been so male-centered that this is a way to kind of move away from patriarchy and move away from this maleness of God. Because if we focus on Jesus as male, then and then we understand God as male and we know the consequences of that. And then um, I didn't do it. And during that time when I just, I was also busy raising three kids, so I didn't have much time to write. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. So that came out 2002, and I didn't write my next book, I think, until 2011. So that was a nine-year break. But in 2011, I wrote the book, um, Holy Spirit, She and the Other. And since then, um, all the other books, so I have 15 books out, um, most of them are all just dealing with the Spirit. 
or if I'm writing on the church, somehow it all leads to the spirit and this healing of broken humanity. The understanding of the spirit is threaded in. Um, me as a Presbyterian minister, you know, we're so not focused on the spirit. So people always wonder why is a Presbyterian minister, a Presbyterian theologian focusing on the spirit. But I really think we cannot do anything without the spirit. So earlier when I talked about uh, restoring justice, reconciliation, the lamenting, we really need the spirit in our lives to help accomplish all this. Uh, without the assistance of the spirit, you know, Jesus said, I will leave the spirit. But I think so much of us have just been so uh, crystal centric that we forgot about the role of the spirit. You know, the Spirit came on Pentecost and filled the people, and the Spirit kind of helped them, comforted them, was a counselor, guided them. It is the Spirit that gives us life. And we, as a Protestant denomination, and maybe in the uh, Roman Catholic traditions too, in the Catholic tradition, we don't focus so much on the Spirit, but I think we really need to cry out and say, come, Spirit, come, so that we will be renewed, that the Spirit will strengthen us. Because at times, you know, I must confess, it's very difficult to love those uh, who are different from us and love those who are so mean to us and discriminate us and uh, hurt us and assault us, um, create violence against us. But we can only do this at the end of at the end of the day with the with the help of the Spirit. So I think we really need to kind of go back and try to understand the spirit. I think we as a church, we've become Christocentric because at least there was a physical being on this mm -hmm. world uh, and it was easier to kind of um, identify with a human being, a human God kind of. Um, so we did center on the, on um, Christ, but I think now um, to become a more just society, this gender equality, uh, moving away from sexism, because the spirit is, you know, neither male nor female. Um, you know, I think it's a helpful way to understand God and how God works in this world and how God works in our life. So that's why this thread of the spirit you can find in the book. And if your listeners are interested in any of my other books, they can go and, and search them on Amazon or come to my website. You can just Google my name because everything, all my social media and the website is just Grace G. Sun Kim. So they can see it if they're more interested in the um, way that the spirit moves and how the spirit is in our lives. Great. Thank you. Yeah, that was really one of the things about the book that I appreciated the most because um, uh worship in the Roman Catholic Church. And so there is, I mean, we always pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But otherwise, there isn't much, you know, mention of the role of the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. So I appreciated that a lot. Um, although I came to faith uh, as a teenager in the Pentecostal Church, so that oh. I have some, some background and I've always, you know, longed to see the Holy Spirit's role sort of elevated. Mm -hmm. And so I appreciate it. Yeah. And, you know, the, the spirit moves us in different ways. So, you know, in the Protestant tradition, so much of us think that it's only the way that the Pentecostals experience the spirit. But the spirit is can be wild and come down like a fire, but it's also this gentle, mm -hmm. um, it's, it's understood as a light. Um, so many ways that we understand the spirit. So the spirit moves us in so many ways. So, um, you know, in my background, the other book that came out this year is called The Whole Brood. Christianity Guide to the Holy Spirit. There I shared the, my also, you know, even though I grew up Presbyterian, my dad and my mom dragged us to all these Pentecostal revival services. <laughs> so I'm very aware of Pentecostal tradition and how they experience the Spirit. But, you know, that's not the only way. There's so many ways that the Spirit comes and fills us. So we really need to be open, whether you're Roman Catholic or Presbyterian or Anglican, that we be open to the to the movement of the spirit, that the spirit will move us and, and help us uh, become the peacemakers that I talked about earlier, um, work towards reconciliation and, and, and build justice. Absolutely. So to conclude, is there a particular verse or quote or set of other set of words that has been a source of meaning or hope for you, as, especially as you consider the healing of our broken humanity. Um, so I, um, I think perhaps um, 
Romans 15, 13. Um, I'll just I'll recite it. It's, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So, you know, I think the Holy Spirit, there's so much power in the Holy Spirit, you know, to move mountains and, and to eliminate the social injustices or eliminate um, this gender bias and, and, and et cetera, all these uh, brokenness in our society. So that passage gives me hope that there is this power in the Holy Spirit um, so that as we experience these brokenness as individuals or as a community or as a group of women or as people of color or um, LGBTQ community, somehow we can be healed through the power of the Holy Spirit. And I don't want to just say, oh, the Holy Spirit just healed, but I think we are called to be part of that process to bring healing, um, that we are called to kind of uh, build justice in this world. We are all called to become peacemakers. So just because the Spirit comes and 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 brings us hope doesn't mean we just sit back and do nothing. You know, we as Christians need to act and be part of this process of bringing healing um, into our churches, into our faith communities, and into into our society that we belong to. So um, that passage has been hopeful for me and giving me some sense of comfort um, that the Spirit will be with us and is a powerful Spirit. Yeah, that's very encouraging. So thank you so much for your time and um, offering your wisdom. And it's been a privilege to learn from you this hour. So thanks so much. Thank you so much. It's been a joy to have me. Thank you so much for inviting me. I actually have another co-written book coming out in November called um, Intersectional Theology. So um, I would love to come back and and answer any of the questions that you you may have in the future. Thank you so much for having me. You have been listening to an interview with Dr. Grace G. Sun Kim. More information on Dr. Kim and her writing can be found on her website, gracegsunkim.wordpress.com. This has been a production of Women in the Academy and Professions, a focused ministry initiative of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship USA. We value the contribution of podcast guests who are not employed by InterVarsity, and we acknowledge that the opinions of our guests may or may not represent the ministry, doctrine, or policies of InterVarsity. Thank you for joining our conversation as we engage in faith and life together. We'd love to hear your feedback. To share your thoughts or to learn more about who we are or the resources and connections we provide, we invite you to visit us at our online gathering place, The Well. You can find us at thewell.introversity.org.